And if the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, I question America. I am confident that the Democratic Party will reunite on the basis of democratic principles and that together we will march towards a democratic victory in 1980. I think the Democratic leadership understands that we need to bring those people into the party. We need to transform the party. We need to make the Democratic Party a democratic party with a small d. I think the future of the party is working class, and I think that what I represent, and, and perhaps you know Senator Sanders, also Senator Warren, there's a lot of working class champions in the Democratic Party, and I do think that that's the future. Welcome to Talking Strategy, Making History. I'm Dick Flax, activist, retired professor of sociology, and a really old guy. And I'm Daraka Laramore Hall, a slightly less old guy and also an activist and political strategist. And on this season on Talking Strategy, Making History, we're going to be talking about one of the big questions for progressive strategy here in the United States in what we're calling a hitchhiker's guide to the Democratic Party. We decided that Daraka should help us map the Democratic Party by laying out uh, its structures. He is, after all, vice chair of the Democratic Party of the state of California, so he has some very direct lived experience, but he's also that political science major kind of guy who can lay it all out <laughs> to start us off. What is the Democratic Party as a structure? Does it even exist? Heaven save us from political science majors. So, yeah, describing the actual structure of the Democratic Party in just a few minutes is is hard. And it's uh, paradoxically hard because uh, at the same time, it's uh, it, it's very complex, but also not very powerful, really, as an entity in comparison to, you know, politicians as individuals and let alone the huge machinery of campaign finance and lobbying and advocacy, the party itself as an organization um, really fits in between the margins of all of those powerful political forces in the United States. Uh, but I'll give it a shot. And, and the first thing is to define what even a political party is. And that's where, you know, political scientists have, uh, used an analogy of three interlocking circles usually to describe what a political party looks like in modern democracy. And it's a, it's a helpful model. It's a helpful diagram. And what they say is that a political party is three things at the same time. And each of these spheres or circles interlock and interact in different ways in different political environments in different countries. But a party is a team of folks in government so Nancy Pelosi and her caucus of Democrats in the House of Representatives, the Democrats in your state legislature, even Democrats together in a, a large city council. That's the party in government, political scientists would say. And then there's the party organization, the thing like that I'm elected within as a state party officer, the, the district clubs and the precinct boards and so forth. These This is the actual structure of the Democratic Party. And then finally, there's the voters in the electorate who either are registered with the Democratic Party uh, in states where that's possible, or, you know, at the very least are 
identify with and could vote for the party. Right. And uh, the last uh, is interesting because it's not only people who are registered, but maybe people who think of themselves as Democrats, right? That's part exactly. of a lot of people's identity. And and the reason uh, I think we, we want you to dwell on this or develop this is because so much of discourse by by activists is often so simplified. They talk about the Democrats. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I think you're trying to convey uh, is the multiplicity of this name, the Democrats, and what is the Democratic Party is not a single entity, which is very important, I think, for thinking strategically to get that and to understand that. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, to, to put it in comparison to really underline how strange that arrangement is, the very loose arrangement is between voters, the party organization and the elected politicians. If you compare it to a parliamentary democracy, you usually find very centrally organized parties and ones where the membership, the activists, the people in the organization directly choose who the candidates are uh, and then therefore directly choose who the party in government is going to be. And in some cases, they even get to choose or have input over what roles individual elected officials play in the party and government. You know, who gets to be the leader, who gets to be the deputy leader, etc. So in America, in the United States, we're really characterized by a, a very weak set of relationships between the uh, the 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 different aspects or these different spheres of the party. And one thing that you hit on that's really important is that this isn't just a question of political will or culture. It's not just it's not like the Democrats and the Republicans, if they decided tomorrow to have a more disciplined and tightly knit party, they could. It's built into the electoral system, right? In a parliamentary system, you have the assumption of parties and people often vote for parties or lists of candidates on a party list. And it's the parties who decide who then the executive is going to be in government. Whereas in the United States, we elect thousands and thousands of individual people. I think the number is even it's like 300,000 elected offices in mm -hmm. the United States. Right. And most of them are elected on a formally nonpartisan ballot. And even the ones that are partisan, the selection of the candidates is done by thousands and thousands of people in a primary, right? Nothing like a European parliamentary system where it's the activists or the apparatus of the party who decides who the candidates are. Anybody can check a box and say, I'm going to run in a democratic primary. And if they get more votes, they're the official Democrat. And sometimes the local membership or active membership can try to hold those people accountable or, or make endorsements that, uh, that foreground people who really will fit in with the prevailing ideological and policy views. And sometimes the, the local party organization isn't that strong or coherent, right? Right. And so that's that's a question of activist energy from community to community. I mean, the the relationship of the party to the election. So whether a, an election is a partisan one where just the party registered voters get to choose who the candidate will be for the general, or it's one like a jungle primary we have here in California where the top two vote getters from whatever party, you know, advance to the general election. 
there's there's 50 different systems for this oh. and as a result there's you know party organizations within every chamber of state government around the country that where the the elected officials come together and decide what candidates to support and move up the chain and 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 so forth and those those groups of elected officials the the alphabet soup of organizations you often hear of the democratic congressional campaign committee the democratic senate campaign committee etc they don't have any real connection to the party organization it's it's just the party and government getting together and doing an election operation to kind of choose who gets to fill the uh the ranks of the party in government and what you hit at dick is that trying to figure out how the party activists can intervene in all of that in a strategic way as Democrats and have influence over who the candidates are, for example, uh, is is just a key struggle that if you look at the history of the Democratic Party, there's just always a battle going on where the grassroots are trying to get more control. But at the end of the day, the party, just like the NAACP or the Sierra Club or uh, the Sunrise Movement um, or anybody else, the, the, the labor movement, the, the party are, is is really a civil society organization out there also trying to influence candidates without any real direct control over them. Right. And uh, part of strategy and, and tactics, if you will, of changing the party is to figure out how to deal with that situation, how to make use of it or how to overcome it or change it. Um, that's been the experience of party reformers and will be from here on in. That's part of what I think we're trying, you and me, on this podcast to to encourage people to really think about as we go forward. Exactly. And just to finish up, to wrap up this uh, mini community college poli-sci 101 uh, introduction to parties, is that ultimately the political party's role in politics is to keep politics political. And that, that sounds kind of silly to say, but in the absence of party labels or people or having organizations that have control over who gets to use the party label, in the absence of that, electoral politics becomes like high school politics, where it's the charisma or or special, uh, you know, unique uh, compliments of a of an individual that drives whether somebody gets elected versus somebody else by by saying okay in order to run as a democrat either to win the primary or to carry the party's official endorsement in a in a city council or school board race when we make that mean something that in order to have the democratic party's label and an organization, hopefully a grassroots organization that comes along with it to help you get elected, that the cost for that, in a sense, is that you have to be a good Democrat and stand up for democratic values and stand up for a set of policy preferences that the grassroots has a, a role in shaping. Making the party do that is a constant creative uh, project because it's not set in stone or set in law that the party will even fulfill that basic function. And that to me is a tremendous opening for progressive activists to like get engaged, but they have to be willing to build the party as they're changing it. 
So when you read the sort of social media discourse, let's say, of progressive activists about the Democratic Party, they will blanketly often use the term the Democrats, or sometimes they will talk about the DNC as if it had a mind of its own, or Pelosi as if she was the controlling force. Mm -hmm. This kind of conversation is usually, I think, carried on by people who either don't want to work within the Democratic Party or are trying to uh, delegitimize it in one way or another, or are feeling frustrated and disillusioned because they were Sanders uh, activists who felt uh, screwed in 2016 and now in the recent times by the party. So what are they talking about? I mean, part of why I think we're doing this podcast is to try to get people in that kind of conversation to be much more aware of the not only nuances, but the necessity of knowing who the targets of anger should be rather than simply using terms like the Democrats or even the DNC. Yeah, I mean, I think largely because of the understandable anger around the the leaked record of people who worked for the Democratic National Committee clearly having a bias in the presidential primary, which they shouldn't have, right? Um, or or shouldn't be shouldn't be expressing on the on uh, on 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 work hours, we should say. Um, <laughs> and 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 so then because of that, I think you know the DNC as an actor. Um, as an institution, yeah, just as you said, became has become sort of stand-in for either the entire party or um, the evil side of it. And you know, in fact, the DNC is neither of those things, right? It's it's a it's a body that exists um, with the primary task of uh, organizing the presidential primary system or the presidential convention nominating convention. Um, and in between, just like a state party would or even a county party, it has a very general mandate for just kind of helping there be democratic activity. And um, the members of the DNC are, you know, sele- uh, 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 sort of got they, they are put on the DNC through several different mechanisms. In some states, they're elected uh, by uh, a body of the state body and other in other states, they're. I think are completely appointed. And then there's a lot of them that are appointed by the chair. And, and one thing that's a pattern with democratic organizations is that the, the kind of mandate and specific powers of the, the democratic body, small D democratic body, in this case, the DNC, um, which of which a lot of the members are elected by an elected body. Um, but but the the powers and specific mandates are very vague or small, which gives the chair a tremendous amount of power. Um, and in this case, the chair of the DNC, though you know, doesn't get to set policy, doesn't get to call the president if it's a Democrat or call Nancy Pelosi and say you've got to be for the Green New Deal. Like you know, Paris doesn't have that power, but Paris does get to decide things like. Uh, almost unilaterally, um, like what kinds of debates um, are going to happen as part of the primary process, um, gets to appoint a lot of people to committees that do make decisions. It really has a lot more power than I think any kind of like healthy participatory organization would have. All that being said, the DNC is a group of people, um, 
a lot of whom are grassroots activists, some of whom are lobbyists, some of whom are elected officials um, who don't have a tremendous amount of power and certainly aren't all of one mind and certainly represent, you know, a range of ideologies and positions within the party. Um, right. And it's and it's not a cabal. I mean, if I could sum up that theme, it's it's uh, to quote Bernie Sanders, actually, who said uh, we want to make the Democratic Party democratic. That's right. Uh, and I think that sounds pretty obvious. So let me just say one more thing about that, which is at the base, the Democratic Party is the diversity of the United States of America at this point. Uh, making the party really represent that fully is, I think, one way I want to begin to think about the goal that we have. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's that's what inspires me right now as a thought, because because the base is there for it, but their capacity to influence the overall framework that the party provides remains limited. It's limited, and yet there it is, and we've got to figure out the strategy. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And yeah. and that's where our conversation with Matthias Lehman from the Sunrise Movement sort of comes in, because that's one organization you know, built by young activists with a, a tremendous sense of urgency and cannot wait. We, we just can't as a, as a planet and as a human community wait for Democratic politicians or let alone Republican politicians to understand the climate crisis and start to make movement on it. And so they have really, you know, taken up the mantle of the Green New Deal, obviously building on some great old traditional democratic politics and taking it further to argue for a radical transformation of the economy and society in order to make it sustainable and with and with some success so far just give me the Matthias Lehman, uh, welcome. Uh, thank you for talking with us today. Matthias is the digital director for the Sunrise Movement and a longtime political activist and campaign worker and thinker. So thanks a lot for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we're going to just jump right in. The work that the Sunrise Movement is doing, and first of all, you know, thank you for it. Um, it's certainly been really exciting to see um, some of the really important confrontations that uh, that the movement has provoked um, in such a short amount of time. But we're thinking today on on in this episode about how we can kind of map the Democratic Party and think about it. And the Sunrise Movement is an organization with an agenda um, of, you know, making actual progress on uh, the climate issue. And um, it seems that very often what you're up against, your opponents, the the people or the forces or the the thinking that's in the way um, of making progress are Democrats. How would you describe to someone like what kinds of Democrats they are? Where are they in the party? Who are they? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, you know, when it comes to climate change, at least Democrats aren't the main obstacle, but they're the movable obstacle. Right. Um, and many of them are pretty close to being the main obstacle. So the the key point of tension that we've highlighted is the amount of fossil fuel money that informs the party's decisions and many candidates' decisions. So honestly, if you look at a lot of the candidates that we've primaried, for example, 
you'll note that they're very, very high up in Congress uh, for ranking of Canada who's taken the most corporate money, Canada who's taken the most fossil fuel money. Hmm. Obviously, um, Henry Cuellar, who we almost took down in the primary, right. um, Dan Lipinski, Richard Neal, we lost that one too. Of course, Joe Crowley and uh, Elliot Engel. These are all candidates that actually take a significant amount of money from corporate interests and particularly from fossil fuels. So that's how we've sort of judged where a candidate can be pushed and where they can't is where their funding comes from. The base of the Democratic Party, the people who identify as Democrats, tend to be quite ready and even eager now to support the agenda that we are as progressives and socialists trying to advance in this country. Campaign contributions may disrupt those agendas, uh, even uh, even in districts that seem safe and have strong minority or, or, or majority minority populations. So here's, here's a thought that to me is really important directly on climate change. It has to do with Jerry Brown. So here's the governor, more than perhaps any other governor in the country, who uh, represented himself as a champion of uh, really dealing with climate change. And yet, my sense is that the environmental movement was extremely frustrated with Brown's uh, policy, you know, attitudes on fracking. He refused to uh, uh, support the, the anti-fracking uh, directions of, the, of environmental uh, protest and movement. Um, what do we make of that? Well, and it's not just him. Uh, Gavin Newsom recently yeah. has been, you know... Like, snarking at Trump with the climate change is real tweets, which are great. Uh, then why is he approving so many new fracking permits? Yes. Um, and I, I think what it, it feels like it boils down to is there's this narrative that's existed in environmentalism for decades, which is, I think it's a, it's a, it's a bifold narrative. The first is the focus on these charismatic megafauna, you know, coral reef, polar bears. And you know, they're cute animals, but if someone's struggling to, to afford healthcare, to afford housing, they're really not thinking about polar bears in their day-to-day lives for the most part. And the second is this contrast between jobs and climate, right? That's how it's always been presented. Well, we, we have to take the steps to help the economy. Don't go too far. Don't mess with jobs. Um, and that, to me, feels fundamentally absurd. Mm-hmm. Climate change and averting climate change is the most monumentous task that we as humankind could like tackle right now. There's so much work to be done and, and, and work means jobs. And so uh, I, it, it's, it's wild to me that we have like, what is what, what seems like the most marketable political issue possible. These, the survival of civilization and humanity as we know it. Uh, and, and again, the monumentous task of doing all that work, and somehow we've convinced ourselves there's no jobs in averting climate change. Right, that it's too expensive. Yeah, that's too expensive. Like, yeah, it's too, I mean, it's too expensive in, in as much as we'd be paying a lot of people to do a lot of work. <laughs> and those are called jobs. That's good. Right, exactly. We don't say Amazon's too expensive. Well, you know, Amazon doesn't pay its workers, so I guess that's a little different very well. It's cheap. But, you know, we, we don't say that uh, uh, mining is too expensive. Um, because, you know, workers used to get pensions because mm-hmm. workers had good wages. We just call those good jobs. Um, and so I, I look at 
you know, a lot of these representatives. And it feels like they're still falling for that dichotomy of, yeah, I want to take action, but I don't want to be disruptive to the economy. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of, say, Brown or Newsom in this kind of thing. Uh, they in the they know what has to be done in the long run, or they say they do, and they're pretty explicit about it. But the short run, they don't want to be responsible for disemploying people who are now employed. That might be the things that are in their mind. In that connection, is there is there a, a potential strategic advantage in the environmental movement a group like Sunrise pressing for simultaneously stopping these projects and paying attention to the needs of those who are workers who are dependent on projects as a part of the, or maybe you're doing that already. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what a green new deal is, right? Mm-hmm. Here's the problem I'm getting the green new deal. Once it's implemented as a total agenda that is bought into by majority of people in a state like California who are, who are in governing positions, that's the goal. I presume we're the proximate goal. Meanwhile, Brown goes ahead and refuses to ban fracking. That, I think, was his particular case. This situation is what leads to activists on on the environmental or left side saying we can't work with the Democratic Party because they sell us out. So I would say that the, the, the connection that you're talking about there, right, making sure that what we are engaged in is simultaneously a reduction of our, our emissions, reduction of our pollution, et cetera. And, and also, really, we could call it reparations yeah. for the, the climate damage that has been done already and for the existing jobs that will be collateral of these changes. Right. And it's tough because people don't have those two concepts linked directly in their minds, right? And it's very easy to split them up. And at that point, it's one thing that's popular but expensive and one thing that's unpopular. And if you don't do both of them, it feels hard to balance. So I think that is the core task is getting people to really associate those two things um, and see them as not just connected, but as two sides of the same coin. You know, you you can't do one without the other. Right. Well, I was going to say, if, if I could add, it, it seems to me that even the harder piece of that is actually the the affirmative right. planned public expenditure piece. Right. So it's not just that politicians are afraid to you know be held responsible for the loss of what in the end could actually just be a handful of jobs they get hammered for that um but also like in order to the, the new deal part of the green new deal you know is a jobs program and is public investment and housing and infrastructure and that month you know you got to tax somebody to to pay for that and there's a lot of timidity still left among elected officials about um, you know, raising taxes and 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 being bold in terms of public programs. So I'd say that it's it's both on the protection, environmental protection side, and also on the, you know, the social democratic part of the Green New Deal. You're saying that, but I think I think now we have the reality that this country actually did that mm-hmm. here on a massive scale for a period of time, and that seems to me something. It, the emergency of the climate change is certainly even more powerful uh, than the emergency of the pandemic. I think that connection that you're drawing is exactly correct. Um, I mean, we just spent, again, $2 trillion uh, very inefficiently, but we did so to prop up uh, 
basically people's jobs that they either weren't able to do safely or weren't able to do at all. And if we're going to be doing that, we might as well be doing it for jobs that are long-term beneficial for us as a society. Um, to go back to that, that new, new Deal point, the, the thing that I have started to be very amused at hearing is seeing the Green New Deal and the New Deal as um, you know divergent in some way, that the New Deal is the New Deal and the Green New Deal is like the environmental New Deal. But I wasn't you know, around for it, obviously, none of us were. But the New Deal itself was a Green New Deal. If you look at the mass ecological devastation that was happening with the uh, the Dust Bowl and the uh, what was it called? There there was even um there was a phenomenon where topsoil was carried by winds all the way into yeah. cities and the soil and, erosion and the federal project to restore soil. Soil erosion, yeah. They, they, they were like black twisters that brought uh, such polluted dust that people had respiratory ailments in cities from the topsoil being carried all the way from the breadbasket to the urban centers. And so really, in a lot of ways, the original New Deal was a Green New Deal. It was a response to an ecological disaster. Maybe um, I'm getting this uh, sense that uh, behind what we're talking about here with the Green New Deal is, in fact, relevant to how we deal with the Democratic Party, because (laughs) this is the banner of the Democratic Party. It's been for for 80 years now. It should be. And so the Green New Deal is part of that history. It's a continuation of that history. And even um, Biden is calling himself, what, an FDR Democrat now. It's, <laughs> yes. It strains my imagination to hear that sentence, but uh, it really does give a good indication of where the uh, kind of uh, mythology of the Democratic Party lies. I actually heard something random about the Civilian Conservation Corps about a year ago, which is half of all trees alive today are a result of that tree planting project. Wow. Okay. That's, that's a lot. I didn't realize how, like quite how many trees they had wow. planted. So I, I'd like to shift in um, a little bit and ask um, uh, as maybe leading towards a wrap up, what, what do you think in terms of strategy and tactics? You, you worked, for example, on the Senate race for Kevin DeLeon here in California. Um, I know that you you guys as an organization are engaging in a lot of primaries, but um, in addition to primary battles, what are some some tactics and strategies that you think um, progressives can be using to either move or change the Democratic Party? Um, I think one thing that we approached actually around this time last year that feels like a new tactic to me, although I you know I'm not claiming that no one's done it before. Uh, was targeting the DNC directly, um, specifically all of the voting members of the DNC, and particularly the members of the, uh, was it the platform? It wasn't the platform committee. I can't remember what committee it was, but um, actually got a a resolution passed through that committee to have external climate debates. Uh, And that, that, uh, of course, got shut down when uh, Tom Perez called it to a floor vote, which is, uh, I hear, a little irregular. Very irregular. But, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, for our first time trying that tactic, we felt like it, it went pretty well. And, and what it made us realize in talking to all of those uh, representatives is that, you know, a lot of the DNC operates in a way that's not publicly visible and they're not used right. to, to public pressure. Um, one of the uh, DNC members actually from up in Minnesota 
had said that he was on the opposite side of this issue. And he got so many calls from people, you know, talking to him about the importance of climate change in their lives, this issue that he ended up switching. Wow. So I think that's a lot easier than, say, a, a, you know, a congressperson that has a, a secretary or, you know, someone whose job it is to take their calls and then ignore them. Right. And, uh, you know, DNC members, I feel like really are much more in some ways uh, connected to pressure in that way. So I, I think targeting the DNC is one. And then uh, local government is another strong place where like a lot, a lot of races are just uncontested in local government. And even races that you don't think apply to your issue, whatever it is, you know, climate or health or not, it seems like probably do. Yeah. Right. If, if you care about criminal justice, like, wow, school board's actually really important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I mean, that's still technically a primary, but like races that are not really typically considered partisan, you know, non-legislative, non-executive races. In his interview, we talked about the fact that the majority of Democrats in a state like California are very receptive, if not in, even very enthusiastic and committed to fundamental structural policy change, the Green New Deal, single payer, things that Bernie Sanders called socialist, democratic socialism. That's true. And that's something that we act upon. We were progressive activists. But the problem is the electorate registered Democrats, those who lean Democrat, who vote Democrat, include people who are supposedly more moderate or centrist or have mixed views or conflicting even their own internal conflicts about a lot of ideological things. So politicians that, that are operating in swing districts, in close districts, who are needing to appeal to people who are not registered Democrats in order to win the majority in their district, they're caught in the in terms of where they can stand politically and ideologically. This is sort of obvious, and yet often uh, it's painted by critics on the left as simply a matter of courage. If you had courage, you would be more principled, they might say. This is a problem not just in this country at this time. It's a problem within any majoritarian political party in a democratic electoral system that I'm aware of. How do you build electoral coalitions to get elected? And where does the left fit into that? You're starting to evoke Weber and Michelle's and yeah, yeah everyone who told us 100 years ago and more, right, to be not to expect too, too much from a political party that's trying to win a majority and get elected. It'll start to have its own interest as an institution. And as you say, exactly right, that every individual, I mean, if you think about this, you have, there's over 300,000 elected offices in the United States. And in every single one of them, if you, you had a progressive person, they're, they're trying to get to 50% plus one or, you know, 30% if it's a, one of these weird at-large races that people have for city council, but there's some number, some percentage of the electorate they got to get to, to win or to win re-election. And at the end of the day, they're really on their own in terms of raising the money to do that, in terms of doing the, the work and, ha and getting some, you know, some professionals or, you know, people with skills and experience to help them do it. And sometimes there's a party organization there to help them also, but that's not even really the norm. 
So then with all of those things like together, those individual people are going to have to be making decisions to the best that they can about what's going to get them a majority and keep them a majority. So what might seem really obvious that, you know, everyone should be for the Green New Deal and for, you know, collective bargaining rights for every worker or, you know, and for higher taxes on the rich. If you're running for city council unaided by any kind of organization, you just want to do good rather than bad. It's pretty hard for you to like go out and necessarily be perfect on all of those issues all out on your own. So, right. But the dynamic then is maybe more at the level of changing people at the grassroots or mobilizing people at the grassroots than being very accusatory toward politicians. Of course, there are there are times you really want to denounce polit- mm-hmm. politicians uh, and you want to get rid of them and you want to replace them. But sometimes you got to. Sometimes you got to. But uh, and, and so these are matters usually, as you're indicating, left to people in the in the community about what they think of so and so who's holding down an office. When you realize, as we talked about last episode, in 1960, as a young activist, we were dealing with a Democratic Party whose large portion of which was controlled and led by white supremacists. Right. And our goal was to get them out of the party. And the point being that social movements are intimately connected to the party, uh, even if they are not participating in its machinery because of their impact on the electorate to which the Democratic Party is trying to reach out. That's right. And trying to figure out that interaction between the movement in the grassroots, who who may or may not be electorally oriented at any given time, and the party itself. You know, I think one of the things is to understand that just behaving like a party, so, you know, having people run for office and say, hey, I'm a Democrat, and people in the electorate thinking, hey, being a Democrat means a certain set of basic things, pro-labor, pro-environment, feminist, what have you. And so I'm going to vote for that person. They say they're a Democrat. Um, and then go, and then they go into office and they behave more or less like that. Like that process that we kind of take for granted is so important for democracy. It's so important for empowering the voter for being able to imp- impact policy and and not just have a competition between charismatic individuals to try to get jobs in government, right? I mean, that's that's what a totally nonpartisan politics would be. Um, you know, it'd be like a high school election. So the, at, at their very basic, what parties do is like bring politics and policy into elections. And everything in American politics is basically set up to be hostile to that. In the political culture, there's this like idea that the really cool politician is a maverick who will just like backstab their fellow party members every chance they get. Like that's a really good politician. <laughs> and then a you know nonpartisan across the the aisles is just you know this is like this that fetishized space. But then also on the left, we're like anti-partisan. Like I'm not a member of a party. I think for myself, and I could never see myself in the same party as you know, whoever, Nancy Pelosi or or Hillary Clinton, who, whoever the, the bugbear is at the time. But the point being that there's so many ways that makes just that simple operation of, 
hey, to be a Democrat is means that I should vote like in general, along with my fellow Democrats. And 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 that's how we like mobilize and build trust in the electorate. Just doing that takes a ton of work. And unfortunately, I think progressives expect that that work will happen somehow. Someone will do it. And then progressives job is to just kind of like stand on the outside and throw in bombs of truth. But the fact is, like, just doing that, like making the party function as a party and be consistent takes activism and takes leadership and takes networking and takes organizing. And so I found that as a progressive, it's like in the party that I split my time between, you know, just building the party and maintaining against it, maintaining it against all the forces that want there to not be parties in a way, while also moving it left and 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 having the fights over ideas and, and issues and policies. I would throw into what you just said about the nature of the party, the structure of the party. It's not only having the party act like a party with coherence, but having that based on democratic participation, right? Excellent point. Yeah. And and that's that's the difference between, you know, as you you and I have talked a lot about E. E. Schott Schneider and that generation of fifties political scientists. And they were very smart. He, he in particular was very smart about pointing out how important parties are, you know, in the ecology of democracy, so to speak, and the competition between them being so important for having a democratic society. He didn't give a crap, frankly, whether the parties were internally democratic. I do. Um, yeah. And that's the other piece, right, is like the part of being engaged in the party is also a reform effort. Like it should be about finding those spaces in the party that are participatory and defending them and strengthening them against the model that the consultants and a lot of electeds would like, which is every party activist is a, is a resource to be mobilized, an asset to be put on a chessboard, not somebody to tell me how to vote. Right. So maybe we need to wind this particular episode up, but I want us to come back to a point we started to talk about in the first episode about parties' relationship to to corporate uh, influence. And this was clearly central to what Matthias and we were discussing when when he was uh, on. And it may be that maybe the one way to define the battle or a key way from, from here on is which Democrats find themselves very comfortably allied with ruling class power, you might say, with Wall Street or banks or corporations, uh, either in their particular locality or nationally, and whether that is a dividing line that might really clarify, if we focused on that, would be a way of clarifying what the battle is in the coming period within the party. This is a theme we're going to keep coming back to, but uh, it, it may be one of the keys to understanding the Democratic Party in the past and now. From the point of view of certain people on the left, the party is inescapably, totally, and by definition, a party of the corporate class. I don't think you and I agree with that. I mean, I don't think it's inescapably anything. And, you know, and it was why I tried to frame all of this in talking about the, the 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 age the ricketiness of this institution it's been a lot of things in its career it was inescapably the party of segregation and the the and white supremacy that's right but as you pointed out right pe- people got to work and put in a lot of literal blood sweat and tears to 
to change that about the party. And I think that's right, that one way we could frame the current need for realignment of the party is to realign it away from corporate power, um, not just in terms of, hey, here's money, so vote with us, which is part of the dynamic, but also the lack of imagination for being able to think of, of economic policy and social policy that isn't market focused. So the corporations and corporate thinking and neoliberalism, to use a, a loaded phrase or a loaded term, that definitely is one way to, to, to look at a dividing line within the Democratic Party. I don't want your millions, mister. I don't want your diamond ring. All I want is the right to live, mister. Give me back my job again. That's our show for now. You've been listening to Talking Strategy, Making History, the first season of which we call A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Democratic Party. Tonight was one installment. You'll be hearing more in weeks to come. You can support us and get exclusive full interviews with our guests at patreon.com slash TSMH. Patreon.com slash TSMH. See you next time.